0: We are technically in Isaiah 59 tonight. We will begin, however, in Romans 3. I was speaking to Steve just a few minutes ago. That Steve, not oh, that Steve. Steve, Steve. We're going to have to number you. I think Steve that's the only choice. Steve 1 and Steve the sequel is probably the way we need to go. I was speaking to Steve the sequel earlier, and as soon as he came through the door, he sat down and just started commenting on how crazy literally everything is. Mm. It's reached the point where you no longer have to argue theologically, biblically, doctrinally that men are depraved. All you got to do is just point, just look. Just look at the world. Look what the world is doing now. Look at the rampant stupidity everywhere. But one of the things that Steve, the sequel, and I agreed on, that's officially your name now. I hope you appreciate that. But one thing that we agreed on was there is comfort in knowing that the Bible predicts this. Said that times were going to get very difficult toward the end, and I see so much of what's happening right now in the world as a confirmation that the Bible is true. And I'm not even speaking eschatologically at this moment. I am speaking anthropologically. I am talking about the fact that the Bible says human beings are deeply depraved, and we're seeing that rampant depravity everywhere in the world right now. Proof yet again that the Bible is accurate in its assessment of human beings, and that no matter what people would prefer to think about themselves, the Bible says what it says, and then the Bible is proving itself by the way the world continues to go. We're starting in Romans 3 because <coughs> in Romans 3, Paul describes the natural state of human beings And he draws some of his descriptions right out of Isaiah's language that we're going to read tonight. So let's start at Romans 3, and then we'll talk about the Isaiah passage. I'm in Romans 3, starting at verse 9. We should all be familiar with this by now. What then? Are we better than they? For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So Paul has been dealing with the fact that Jews are condemned by the law and that Gentiles are condemned without the law. And therefore, across the board, everyone is guilty before God, both Jews and Greeks. And then to prove it, he reaches straight to the scripture. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is none that understands. There is none who seeks for God. And the path of peace they have not known, because there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we can turn to Isaiah. Isaiah 59, the first section is going to sound exactly like what I just read. You can see that Paul is very, very familiar with this particular section of Isaiah, and in fact, In the course of this evening's lesson, we're going to look at three passages out of Isaiah 59 that Paul picks up and imports into the New Testament. That's how familiar Paul is with this particular chapter. And Paul gives this chapter a tremendous amount of validity, and that's necessary to remember because it also includes God saving Israel. And so it's no surprise That when you look at Romans, and you get to Romans 9, 10, and 11, that Paul would make part of his argument right from Isaiah 59. The first part of Isaiah 59 is God declaring the sinfulness of Israel. Paul picks up that language, imports it into the book of Romans, what we just read in Romans 3, in order to say that all people, Jews and Gentiles, are guilty and sinful, But when Isaiah is writing it, he's speaking particularly of Israel. But then starting at verse 9, there is a confession on the part of Israel that God is right. God's correct. You're right. We are all sinful. We are all depraved. You're absolutely right. Okay, so you've got God's declaration of human depravity. And then you've got humans admitting back to him. You're just, you're correct, you're righteous, you're true in everything that you say. We are corrupt. So then how is there to be any salvation for Israel or for anybody in the whole wide world? This is not theology that was created in the New Testament. This is not theology that was created by the Reformers. Even though this is going to sound remarkably Calvinistic, it's not something that John Calvin made up. Instead, what you're going to see is that the answer to human depravity, the only way anybody's going to get saved, is that God is going to have to work monergistically. Now, within... The larger Christian sphere, people will argue about whether salvation is a monergistic work or whether it is a synergistic work. Monergistic means God does it all by himself. And the proof that he's doing it all by himself is that he starts by pointing out how incapable everybody is of doing anything. And since you're all incapable of helping yourselves, if God doesn't act, then nobody gets saved. Synergy, for anybody who doesn't know it, synergistic salvation, is the idea that you and God cooperate to get you saved. That is a very common theology that is prevalent in so much of the modern church world. It is also completely anti-biblical, as you can see from what we just read out of Romans 3 and what we're about to read here from Isaiah 59. So let's start at Isaiah 59 verse 1. We did read some of this last week at the end of our teaching on Isaiah 58, because it says, behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. In other words, God's not restricted. If he wants to save somebody, he can. Israel has been saying, where is God? We've been doing this stuff, and yet we're not getting credit for it. Where's God? God here in the beginning of of chapter 59 is arguing, I can save you if I want to. I can help you if I want to. I can be there for you if I want to. So why am I not helping you? Well, the answer is right in the text. My hand is not so short that it cannot save. Neither is his ear so dull that he can't hear your moaning, your crying, your praying to him. He hears you and he has the ability to help you, but the problem is not with God which is who they were blaming, the problem is with you. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you. So why is his face hidden? Why is he not responding? Why is he not helping you? Because your sins hid his face from you so that he does not hear you. He can, but he doesn't. Verse 3, because your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers are defiled with iniquity, your lips have spoken falsehood, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one sues righteously. That word sue is to plead. No one pleads righteously toward God. They're all sinners pleading toward God, and no one comes pleading honestly. They trust in confusion, they speak lies, they conceive mischief, and they bring forth iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs, and they weave a spider's web, and he who eats of those eggs dies. And from that which is crushed, a snake breaks forth. Your webs will not become clothing, will not become a covering, Nor will they cover themselves with their works. That goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, who thought they could sew up some fig leaves and cover their own sinfulness. Their works are works of iniquity. And an act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are the thoughts of iniquity. Can you see now why just a couple chapters ago we read God saying, My ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts, as high as the heaven is above the earth, so were my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. Now he's explaining what your thoughts are. Your thoughts are full of iniquity and shedding innocent blood. Devastation and destruction are in your highways. They do not know the way of peace, and there is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked, crooked, And whoever treads on them does not know peace. So then starting in verse 9, there is the general profession that God is right, that God is telling the truth. Therefore, justice is far from us. Right, we were begging you, we were crying out to you, thinking that it wasn't fair because we were doing the religious stuff and you were not responding to us. Now that you show us our iniquity, justice is indeed far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold, darkness. We hope for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight among those who are Vigorous, in other words, those who are alive and well, we are like dead men. Compared to genuinely righteous men, the sinners are confessing their sin. All of us growl like bears, and we moan sadly like doves. If you remember last week's lesson, this is a reaction to what we heard last week, that they were doing the religious stuff, and they were crying out to God, but they weren't getting the response that they expected. And so they say, we growl like bears, we get angry because we're not getting what we want. We moan sadly to you. We hope for justice, but there is none. We hope for salvation, but it's far from us. By the way, if the ability to save ourselves is far from us, can salvation be a synergistic thing? No, because we just don't have the ability our sinfulness keeps us from the righteousness of God. For salvation, we hope for salvation, but it's far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Transgressing, and denying the Lord, and turning away from our God, speaking oppression, and speaking revolt, and conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. And justice, genuine justice is turned back. And righteousness stands far away from us, for truth has fallen down in our streets. It has stumbled in our streets And uprightness can't even enter our streets, our community. So yes, yes, says verse 15. So yes, we're agreeing with you, God. Yes, truth is lacking. And he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. So now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight, that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man, no intercessor, nobody who was righteous, nobody good enough to fix the problem with human beings. There was no man, and he was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Okay, so so far this is what we know from this chapter. And the reason that we looked at it in Romans 3 was so that you could see Paul carry it over into the New Testament, so that you could see that this was a biblical Constant anthropology, this is the state of human beings naturally, it's not something that was made up theologically at the time of the Reformation, this is firmly what the Bible says, human beings are utterly incapable, and once God reveals to you how sinful you are, how depraved you are, once he allows you to understand the depth of your own darkness, then you really know that you can't help yourself. You can't save yourself. There's nothing you can do. And that's what Isaiah is pointing out here. God makes the declaration. He exposes their sinfulness. They have no choice but to say, yes, that's all true. And God sees that there's nobody, not one, just like Paul said, there's nobody who can stand in the gap on behalf of humanity. And there's no one who's going to intercede. And God is... The the translation here is astonished. He knew this was coming. He's sovereign. He understood that this was going to be the case, and even so, stands in mutual amazement with humans so that we can all collectively look at the sad state of people. So what's God going to do? By his righteousness, by his holiness, he should condemn every single one of us. Ever since Adam's fall, every single human being who ever lived deserves to be judged eternally. Human beings are incapable of saving themselves or fixing themselves or doing anything to lift themselves up. Therefore, the only thing that possibly could happen is here in the second half of verse 16. Then his own arm brought salvation to him there's an amen verse right there There, there's the good news in all that but I just want you to understand the theology that Isaiah is laying out here is saying human depravity is such that human beings just can't help themselves even their works of righteousness are nothing but filth before God There's nothing human beings can do to help themselves. And a God who is righteous and holy must judge absolutely everybody. But thank God, he's also a gracious God. And that one of his characteristics is also mercy and long-suffering. And since there was no man who could fix the problem between God and man, how often have you heard me say, the problem is you, so the solution can't be you. You cannot be the solution to your problem. And if your problem is between you and God, well, you really can't do anything. So, in order for anybody to be saved, it is incumbent on God to do what only God can and will do. His own right arm brought salvation to him. Right arm is usually a euphemism for power. His own strength brought salvation to him. The remarkable amount of eternal power and strength that it took in order to save masses of wretched human beings. And then Jesus is also referred to as the arm of the Lord. To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? And so it is through Jesus that God accomplished complete forgiveness for sin. And he did that by himself. He did that monergistically. This was a plan of God and Christ and the Holy Spirit from the beginning of time, and that is the only theology of salvation that you find anywhere in the Bible. I know at this point I sound like I'm stumping for the same old thing over and over and over again, but you can turn on... I was going to say the radio, but I don't know who still listens to radio. You can turn on anything on the internet any time of day. And you can find somebody somewhere telling you that if you want to go to heaven, you got to fix yourself. you got to clean yourself up. you got to start walking better. Start getting to church. Start reading your Bible. Just you, start doing stuff. And that's what Adam and Eve tried to do. They realized they sinned, they realized they were naked, and they got to work right away, creating their own covering. It didn't work for them. It hasn't worked yet. It doesn't work for anybody. Thank God that he took it upon himself by his own might, by his own strength, by his own power, by his own right arm, he brought salvation to himself which I think is marvelous language, he's going to present his saved people, both Israel of old, the church in the New Testament, all the people that he has chosen, all the remnant of Israel, the remnant of the Gentiles, all the people that he has chosen, he's going to present to himself and give to his son as an everlasting testimony to the glory of the power of the grace of God. He's in the enterprise of glorifying himself. And he's doing it all so monergistically that he's bringing salvation to himself because nobody else could bring it to him. What a God! Mm. What an astounding thing for Isaiah to write because Isaiah was a Calvinist. Okay, I just threw that in for free. I didn't. Pardon me? I think John Calvin was an Isaiah. That's probably more accurate. <laughs> his own right arm brought salvation to him, and his own righteousness upheld himself. What would it be like if he made everlasting promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob? And he promised them land and he promised them a glorious kingdom and he promised them a posterity and he promised them the ultimate king and the throne of David and that the Gentile nations would flow to Jerusalem. What if he promised them all that and then he let them die in their sin? Well, then God himself would be destroying his own reputation and his own righteousness, and his own ability to save. But instead, God did absolutely everything necessary to accomplish the full, complete, eternal salvation of his people so that he is glorifying himself by bringing salvation to himself and bringing righteousness to himself because he is just and the justifier of those who come to him through Christ. He is completely righteous and completely just, but he is also completely strong. And therefore, he's able to bring salvation to his people to glorify himself. It's marvelous stuff. Okay, so now starting at verse 17, you're going to hear language again that is very, very familiar because it's very Pauline language. And he, God, put on righteousness like a breastplate. Isaiah is going to begin describing God as preparing himself for battle. And the first thing that he does is that he covers himself, his breastplate, he covers himself with righteousness. And he wears a helmet of salvation on his head. Because after all, he is the one whose own strength, own right arm, brings salvation to him. And by his own righteousness, he upholds himself. And then Isaiah likens it to the warrior God who puts on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. We'll look at it in just a moment from Ephesians 6 where Paul picks up that same language and applies it to Christians. But what's even more fascinating about what Isaiah says here is the next two phrases which Paul does not pick up and apply to Christians. And there's a real interesting theological nugget here. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal, with heat, with the fire of his own indignation as a mantle. Okay, only God can do that. God himself is the one who said that we were not supposed to avenge ourselves because God will avenge. And so he puts on a garment of vengeance For clothing. So in verse 17, the first two verses have to do with the salvation of his people. The second two verses have to do with his righteous judgment against his enemies. And Christians, Paul is going to say, can do the righteousness and salvation part, but we can't do the vengeance part. That belongs to God. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head so he's going out to save in his own righteousness but he also put on a garment of vengeance for clothing and he wrapped himself with his own zeal as a mantle. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6 for just a moment. Ephesians chapter 6. Paul talking about putting on the whole armor of God picks up that phraseology from Isaiah. Here again is our second evidence for the evening that Paul is really, really familiar with what we're reading out of Isaiah right now because Paul just keeps quoting out of this particular section. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and put on the full armor of God. That's verse 10 and 11 but on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against powers and against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. Now we have a greater sense of why Paul would call that the armor of God. In Isaiah, it is indeed the armor that God was putting on to go do his battle. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The righteousness of God. The righteousness that God himself is clothed in. Paul says, clothe yourself in that. Put on that breastplate of righteousness. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation. Just like Isaiah described. That's where Paul got this imagery. He wasn't just making it up off the top of his head. In addition to all that, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So Paul employs that same kind of battle language. Remember that this is a fight. Remember that this is a battle. That's why Steve walked through the door and sat down and just said, I'm so tired. The world out there is so crazy. And Paul says, yeah, but remember, your battle isn't against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. And so the only way you're going to be able to persevere in this lifetime is to put on the same armor that God himself put on, which is the breastplate of righteousness to guard your heart, to guard your body. And for a helmet, salvation. The salvation that God himself is bringing to himself. And I'm sure that when Paul wrote that, wear that helmet of salvation, I'm sure he knew contextually how Isaiah put it. This is the helmet that God wears because God is bringing salvation to himself. You can see where Paul gets the larger theology of sovereign grace. All right, back in Isaiah. Starting at verse 16, he saw that there was no man and he was astonished that there was no one to intercede. And then his own right arm brought salvation to himself. And his righteousness upheld him. And he put on righteousness like a breastplate. And the helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing. When we get, well, if we get, someday when we get toward the end of the book of Revelation, which may be a while, but when we get there, we're going to see Christ returning with a vesture dipped in blood. And he's coming to exact the vengeance of God. And God says it all the way back here in Isaiah. He's going to put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrap himself in his own zeal as a a coat, as a mantle, as a covering over himself. Why is he doing that? Why is he... Wearing clothes of vengeance and zeal, because according to their deeds, says verse 18, he will repay. And that is why God said that you're not to avenge yourself. He said, I will recompense. I'll make the payment. That's not up to you to do. And believe me, God is much better at that enterprise than you are. According to their deeds, so he will repay them wrath to his adversaries recompense to his enemies and all the way out to the coastlands which I've told you the other times that that phraseology has appeared in Isaiah that it means as far out as land goes to the coastlands everybody, complete, not just Israel all peoples, he will make recompense why is he going to do that? so that they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun in the east. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. So why is he going to pour out this vengeance? So that everybody, even including his enemies, are going to have to bow the knee to him. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. In the Old Testament, it says every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess to God, to Yahweh. In the New Testament, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Either way, that vengeance is coming. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the coastlands. He will make recompense. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come suddenly. He's going to come like a rushing stream, like a flood that's going to overtake them. The Bible, both Old and New Testament, has that language of a flood coming because ever since the time of Noah, the vengeance of God, the justice of God, is likened to a flood that you cannot escape. He's going to come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord is going to drive forward. And then verse 20, which is the third place where it's obvious that Paul knew this chapter really, really well. I think he knew all of Isaiah really well. But if you would, Tom or Steve or somebody, turn to Romans 11, verse 26. Romans 11, of course, is in the context of Paul answering the question of whether God has abandoned those people that he foreknew, Israel after the flesh, his fellow kinsmen. And in Isaiah, it's in the context of talking about Israel, Paul's fellows after the flesh. And look at the promise again. A moment ago, God said his own right arm was going to bring salvation to him and his own righteousness was going to uphold him. Now add to that the means, the method, how he's going to do it. Verse 20 is, and a redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression, specifically in Jacob. So the context here is all about Israel. So you can see why Paul, when talking about Israel in the book of Romans, would go right for this verse and declare that there is a redeemer who's coming not just from Zion, but to Zion to redeem Zion. Tom, if you would, read that. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Remarkably, Paul put that in the context of his evidence that all Israel will be saved. Because he says, therefore, all Israel will be saved. As it's written, a Redeemer is coming from Zion to drive out sin, to take away sin from Jacob. So Paul uses this part of Isaiah to undergird his defense that God has not abandoned Israel. And that's New Testament. So whether it's Old Testament promises from God that he is going to redeem and save Israel for his own sake, for his own righteousness, for his own reputation for the fact that he's made everlasting promises and the word of God is not to be broken. He's going to keep every promise that he ever made to Israel. And within that context, Isaiah has already told us about the suffering servant and how he's going to come and die, how he's going to rise again. And now he brings that up again because a redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob. And how are they going to be redeemed? exactly what Paul said, because that Redeemer who comes from Zion is going to remove sin from Jacob. That, I will say again, is monergism. That is God by himself doing what he wants to do among deeply sinful people who can't avoid and even admit to their sinfulness. I don't know about you, But I can't avoid my sinfulness. I feel like David some days when he said, my sin is always before me. But I'm so very happy to know that the Redeemer of Zion isn't just coming for Zion, that he's also coming for the coastlands that he's also coming for the islands of the sea, that he's also coming for the Gentiles, that he's also coming for everybody that God chose before the foundation of the world, and he's not just going to turn transgression away from Jacob, but he's going to turn away our transgression, so much so that he's going to take our sin as far as the east is from the west. He's going to cast our sin behind his back into the sea of forgetfulness. And here I am agonizing over my sinfulness, over my depravity. And if you find yourself doing that, change your perspective and look at him. And look at what he did. Because when you look at you, you're never going to find anything good. It's already been said. We already know it. You're not going to look within yourself and find something redemptive. You're not going to find anything worthwhile. You're not going to find anything but filthy rags to take to God. you got nothing So, change your perspective and look at him and look at what he did because the only place to find real, genuine, lasting, true comfort is to take him at his word and know that the deliverer of Zion is going to take your sin away utterly and completely. This Sunday, we're going to read it, and the very introduction to the book of Revelation is all through the Bible. It's all the way back to Adam and Eve who I've mentioned a couple times tonight because not only did they try to cover themselves by themselves but we then read that God got an animal skin and covered them. He had to cover them. They could not cover themselves. He covered them and the covering because it was an animal skin means that someone died. An animal died as sacrifice the sin of human beings because the wages of sin is death and somebody's going to die and it's going to be you or it's going to be a substitute and for Adam and Eve God was teaching that lesson in the suffering servant God was teaching that lesson in the book of Revelation God is teaching that lesson and everywhere in between all the books of the Bible are all teaching that one self same lesson which is that you can't help yourself and so God for his own righteousness sake for his own glorification of himself decided to save you by his own power and his own might and his own strength. And boy, if there was ever a hallelujah recognition, that's it. Because the lesson that the Bible is teaching about how people get saved doesn't change. No matter where you look in the Bible, it's always the same. It is always God by his own strength, by his own right arm, accomplishing salvation for himself To demonstrate his own righteousness in upholding himself. It's amazing. So God speaks in verse 21. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit, which is upon you, speaking apparently to Isaiah... And my words which I have put into your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your offspring nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring says the Lord from now and forever. When the eternal one says words like forever, when the forever God Says forever. Do you think he knows what he's talking about? Yes. Mm -hmm. I assume that God knows what forever is. And here is the declaration that God is going to make a covenant with them in this context, Israel. He's going to make a covenant with them that's going to go on forever, that his words are not going to depart from them, they're going to be in their mouth. I mean, that's part of the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 that God is going to put his law in their hearts and no man is going to have to tell his friend or his neighbor, know the Lord because they're all going to know me from the least to the greatest. That's another promise God made, a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I know I'm beating a, a barely breathing horse at this point. But I just hope that you see the consistency not only of God's declaration that he's the only one who can and will save, but also that he's demonstrating it through Israel. And so if you say God is done with Israel, you would be wrong. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit, which is upon you, and my words, which I've put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth. Nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forevermore. Now because it says this is my covenant with them, the pronouns, I I said a moment ago, my spirit which is upon you. I said that may be a direct reference to Isaiah, or it may be a reference to all of Israel, especially when he says, the words that I have put in your mouth, which he put in the Decalogue, which he put in the law, which he gave to Israel specifically, through the prophets, through the generations, is never going to depart from you or your offspring or your offspring's offspring. However you understand the pronoun, this is still a promise from God of everlasting obedience from israel and understanding of the word of god because god's the only one who can save god will defend his own righteousness and his own promises And he's the only one who can reveal to you your genuine sinfulness, and he's the only one who can give you genuine righteousness, and he's the only one who can enlighten you to understand his word, and then he'll put his word in your heart and in your mouth so that you have the capability of speaking the truth of God. It's all God. Arise, says chapter 60, verse 1. Remember, this is a continuation of the same thought. We're not going to read all of verse 60. We're Going to finish with this. Arise, shine. He's talking to Zion, the same people he just covenanted with. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness is going to cover the people, but the Lord will rise upon you. And his glory will appear upon you and nations will come to your light. The Gentiles will come to your light and kings will come to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about you and see they all gather together and they all come to you and your sons will come from afar and your daughters will be carried in their arms. I can't stop. Then you will see, and you will be radiant, and your heart will thrill and rejoice, because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you, and the wealth of the nations will come to you, and the multitude of camels will come to you, and the young camels of Midian and Ephah, and God just goes on with blessing after blessing after blessing through the rest of that chapter. For who? For the people of Zion. How did they go from being the people described at the beginning of chapter 59. Your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have caused God to hide his face from you. You're defiled. Your hands are defiled with blood. Your fingers are full of iniquity. Your lips speak falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. You're not righteous. You trust in confusion. You speak lies. How did they go from that to arise and let your light shine? Mm Grace, grace, grace. Grace, grace, grace. That's just this huge transition among the same people group. And why does that transition happen? Because God himself, by his own power, by his own right arm, through his own grace, because of promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, therefore he's going to keep his word. And that means he's going to keep his word to you. Because he's keeping his word to Israel. And he's doing all of it through the power of, Of the Redeemer that comes from Zion. Questions? Comments? It's pretty clear. Pretty clear stuff. And it says the same thing over and over throughout the Bible. All glory to God, none to human beings, because He's doing it all by Himself.